0: Well, if you will, I would like you to, I'd like to invite you to turn in the book of Titus this morning to Titus chapter two as we come to Father's Day. And uh, we'll, we've been in Titus just a little bit with the series, the short series, two weeks that we did to women on Mother's Day. And I thought maybe it would be appropriate while we're still here in the midst of our summer on Father's Day to stay in this passage, and I want to look at the passage with you from Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2, and there's a little short section in there in 2, 6 through 8. Let me read it to you. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound in speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. <clears throat> I want to focus our time on verse 6 really to the the message to the young men where it says urge the younger men to be self-controlled. That's my message this morning to fathers and when you see that phrase there in 2 6, self-control, I believe, is one of the most important character virtues in all of the New Testament. And so rather than addressing you as fathers and you as fathers with your children, let me just address you as a father personally. Okay? So it's not about your family, not about your children, fathers. On this Father's Day, I want to address you personally. Obviously, if you look down in two six again, you can see that the younger men are to be self-controlled. So that I'm not just addressing you as fathers who are identified as younger men, but I'm addressing young men. That would include you who are in junior high. So this is really an all-encompassing statement here. It would include you men who are in high school. It would include you who are single in college. It would include you who are fathers in your early 20s. It would include you who are fathers in your 30s. And I'll explain that in just a moment. moment. What is the age of a younger man? Obviously, this has great ramifications for single women. You say, well, why, Scott? It says, urge the younger men to be self-controlled because single women, this is the type of man you want to find, okay? This is the type of man that you want to marry. He must be marked by this one quality. You know, it's interesting when you see that phrase there in six: urge the younger men to be self-controlled. If you just picked your Bible out and begin to look for the phrasing of younger men, it's actually quite frequently. I don't have time to to go over the list of that phrase. But you know in Psalm 119.9, we addressed that about a month back when we said, how can a young man keep his way pure, but by guarding it according to your word. There's phrases that address the young man. In fact, it says to young men in the book of Ecclesiastes 12.1, Remember also your Creator. There the writer said, In the days of your youth, before the evil days come and the years draw near, which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. And so the youth are called to remember the days of their youth. In fact, <clears throat> the prophet Jeremiah said, I was ashamed in, in Jeremiah thirty one in verse 19 i was confounded because i bore he said the disgrace of my youth and many other places where young men youth are addressed and those who are young men in here the connection here need to live with self control and then the bible addresses here in 26 self control not only here but in many places Remember Paul said in Corinthians 9.25, every athlete exercises, he said, self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, we in an imperishable. So just as an athlete would exercise self-control, men, women, all of the body of Christ is to exercise self-control. When you see that phrase there in two, six to be self-controlled, you're reminded that that very phrase, the ideal of self-controlled, is a fruit of the spirit. The fruit of the spirit is gentleness, and it actually says, when you 're being led by the spirit, you will manifest self-control in your life. In fact, Paul told Timothy that God has not given us a spirit of fear but of power and love. And he said there, self-control. And so you've got this phrasing of young men and self-control all over the Scripture. Peter, at the end of his first epistle, said, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled. So it's amazing, as we sang in that last song, Christ has covered all of our sin. Absolutely. Absolutely. But you, men, and I am called to be self-controlled. In fact, Peter said in 2 Peter 1.6, when he gave those lists of virtues, and he said, add to your knowledge, uh, and then with your knowledge, add self-control. One of the most stunning verses, I believe, in all of the Bible on evangelism is found in Acts 24.25 where Paul was evangelizing Felix. And it says this in his evangelism to Felix, Acts 24, 25, that he reasoned with him about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment. Have you ever done that in your evangelism? Or are we just offering the good news and not ever saying that the gospel transforms? He was reasoning with this political figure about righteousness and self-control. I would have loved to hear that conversation. And the coming judgment. And the Bible says in Acts 24, 25, Felix was so alarmed that he said, Go away for the present. Interesting. Interesting talking to him about the subject of self-control. So here would be the question this morning. How can a young man live with self-control and please the Lord? How can a young man live with self-control and please the Lord? And what I want to do is draw our attention to the book of Titus, and specifically Titus chapter 2. Now you remember, as I said, maybe a couple weeks back, maybe you're visiting today, but Titus was a pastor. He was a pastor of a local church. He was a pastor of a local church on the Mediterranean island called Crete. And when Paul wrote this letter to his son in the faith, Titus, he had two purposes in mind. Look at Titus 1.5. He said, this is why I left you in Crete, really clear, so that you might put what remained into order And appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Here he gives his marching orders to this church planner. And it's really not about building a crowd. It's not really about your opening day. It's really not about the worship. It's not about how beautiful the building is. He said, I left you in this island of Crete. And I want you to do two things. I want you to put in order what remains. In other words, it was fragmented. So that means anybody who's in church leadership is fixing problems. You're putting to order stuff that's in chaos. You're putting in order what is still left there. And then you are appointing elders. And this was very, very, very important. It was important because of the false teachers. Would you look down in chapter 1? He's speaking there of the false teachers. He says they profess to know God, but but they deny him by their works. In other words, they're talking knowledge, but their lifestyle is a debauched situation there. He says in one sixteen, they are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. And so he's trying to talk about this theme of works and godliness. Look over in chapter 2 as we walk into it. He says, but as for you, and of course he's giving a command, is that aged apostle, the apostle Paul, to his young son in the faith. And he gives him a second person imperative. Listen, Titus, they may go this way, but you need to do this. And look what he told him to do. He told him, he says, to teach what accords with sound doctrine. In other words, I want you to teach the scriptures and teach doctrine that is healthy for people. You know, there was a, it was actually a friend of mine who was just here last week. He was last week here on Sunday dropping off his precious daughter and he lives up north a couple hours and he's not been in an easy situation at a local church and of course, all the people were outside afterward, the buses were there, young people were signing up for camp, kids were signing up for camp, and I, and I turned to him, and I, he, he looked like he was, uh, he just, he, he looked like he was choking up. I said, are, 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 are you okay? And he just looked at me with tears in his eyes, and he said, this is what church is supposed to be like. In other words, he's gotten so far away where he is that he doesn't even know what a healthy church looks like. And he's looking at you on the patio, the activity, the love, the joy. And he realized he was in a healthy place. But it's interesting, a healthy place is defined here by Titus, by these elders who are to teach What accords with hygieno is the word, sound, healthy doctrine. Now, one of the ways for Paul to tell Titus to put in order what remains, you see this in chapter 2, is to spell out God's design for these various age groups. He talked to the older men. He talked to the older women. He talked to the younger women. This morning, he's going to address the young men, and then he's going to deal with those in the workplace later in chapter 2. Now, you'll note here, again, look at 2.6. He says, likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. And as I say to you, and I want to say this again to you, it is one of the most important character virtues in all of the New Testament. Okay? Now, you'll note there, look at 2.6, just a little background. His first word there in the ESV is likewise. In other words, I've just previously said this to you in the book of Titus. In other words, just as elders... And just as older men, and just as older women, and just as younger women, and just here, young men, they are to be self-controlled. And so he begins, he's not saying something exclusively to the young men. He says, likewise. You say, well, in what sense, Scott? Look back in chapter 1, in verse 8. He's giving the qualifications of an elder there. And he said an elder needs to be hospitable. A lover of good, and here's the word in 1 8, self controlled. So an elder has to be marked by that, not by sinless perfection, but by direction of life. An elder, whatever the quality is, he must be there, self controlled. If you glance again at chapter 2, verse 2, look at it there to the older men. They are to be sober minded, dignified, And in 2-2, they are to be self-controlled. And so you've got an elder that is called to be self-controlled. You've got an older men called to be self-controlled. In fact, the older women, you might not be able to see it, in 2-4, the older women, it gives her behavior in 2-3. And in 2-4, it says this, and so train the young women. That word train there is to train in the area of self control. It's built into the root of that word. And then if you will, look at 2.4. She's to train the younger women to love their husbands and children. Verse 5. There it is to younger women. To be self-controlled. And then now you look again at 2.6. Urge the younger men to be self-controlled. If you will, glance down in your Bible at 2.12. Here, that grace of God that appeared in 2.11 in 12 is training us to announce ungodliness and worldly passions. There it is. And to live self-controlled. You know, just when you begin to read and memorize the book of Titus, one wonders, given the frequency of this word in the book of Titus, if the lack of self-control was not the main issue that he's addressing. In fact, it's all over, just as I read to you. And you say, well, why is that, Scott? Go back to the context in chapter 1 and verse 12. One of the Cretans who lived there, right, a prophet of their own, said Cretans are always, here's their lifestyle, liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. And Paul says in 13, this testimony is true. So as he begins to address the young men, he says, likewise. Now look back in the text at 2.6. Before he gets to the, the charge, he says, I want you to urge the younger men. That's a very strong word in the original language. To urge someone. I don't even think I can uh, actually say. It's, it's the idea of pleading with someone. Pleading, if you will. Begging someone. Pleading with them. And so, this is a very strong word. So listen, here is Paul telling Titus, this is pastoral ministry. You need to urge the young men to be self-controlled. In other words, there's a, there's a passion in that. In fact, this is what pastors do. This is what elders do they're not effeminate men they're not men without a with a strong inner core if you will they've got to urge and plead with people if you're thinking about ministry here you're even at the master seminary with us This is one of the roles, and here Paul is telling Timothy, excuse me, Titus, you can see it, I want you to urge these younger men to be self-controlled. In other words, Titus, I want you to persuade them with authority that they need to be self-controlled. I mean, this is not a suggestion. This is not an option. This is a command to us as a group of younger men and even older men. It's a command to you older women and a command to you younger women. Now listen, as we approach this text, I just wanna ask and answer three key questions, okay? That will enable a young man to see the importance of self-control in a sinful world. So here's just my message to you, my encouragement to you on this Father's Day this one noble quality, this virtue that only comes with life in Christ to be self-controlled, okay? And, and you ought to take notes, Dad, because this ought to mark your life, and it ought to mark what you're doing with your sons. If you're a seventh grader, get your pen out, okay? If you're an eighth grader, get your pen out, if you're a young single man, get your pen out. You need to be able to see what the Scripture is saying on this quality that we would be marked by this quality. Here's the first question. won't be long. What is the age of a younger man? You, you see it there in 2.6. The Bible's saying something. Urge the younger men. He's addressing the younger men. Well, Scott, what is the age of a, of a younger man? Well, it's both relative... And it's both objective, or relative and objective. Obviously, a younger man or younger men is relative to age. Relative to age. A younger man is obviously younger than an older man in Titus 2.2. That's fair, right? I mean, we could at least establish that. That at one point, you've got children in the Scriptures... Then at another point in Scripture, you have older men. Here, he's talking to younger men, and it's relative at least to the age of an older man. But it's objective, if you will. Secondly, objective to station in life. An older man, you would agree, has experienced life. He has in this passage and others likely raised his children. A younger man is younger, he's inexperienced, he's in the throes of life itself. Now let me just give you a generalization here from the scripture without being able to pinpoint it. Definitely, generally speaking, Grace Church of the Valley, boys 12 and under were considered children, okay? Generally speaking, generally Generally, men over 40 were considered older men and older men. So I would just say to you that a young man is anywhere from the age of 13 all the way up to 40. And so I'm addressing you on Father's Day with this. This exhortation obviously includes single men as well. It includes those of you who are married. It includes those of you who are in your 30s. These are qualities that a father should master as well as train in their sons. So what is the age of a younger man? Well, from 13 to 40. Secondly, though, here's the second question. What is the meaning of self-controlled? What does that phrase mean? What is the precise meaning? Obviously, we're doing a little bit of a word study here. The word means to be of sound mind. In other words, it's to be of a healthy, safe, sound mind. Sometimes you might even be holding a Bible that uses the word sensible. Sometimes those are used depending on the translation. Self-controlled can speak of a young man, a young woman, an older man, a younger woman, somebody who is sensible. Sensible here in the ESV, it's translated self-control. You say, Pastor Scott, what is it? It's let me say this in a word: it's self-mastery. Okay, it's it's self-mastery is the thought. In other words, a young man is exhorted here not to be mindless he 's not to be led by his emotions. he is to be level headed to to be self controlled for a young man is to have his passions his emotions under control. in fact, I think you would you see this to be Self-controlled is to be self-restrained in your passions, to be self-restrained in your desires. It's to live a self-controlled life with self-restraint and self-mastery. It is control over your passions, control over your desires. It's an interesting quality because our world doesn't value this but here in the New Testament, this is a supreme virtue. In fact, I, a couple of weeks back when I was talking to the young women out a Titus, I brought you to that text. I won't tell you, but it's in Mark 5.15. It might even come up on the screen. Do you remember when Jesus came to the demoniac, the guy who couldn't be controlled, the guy who was out of control, the guy when they put chains on him, he broke the chains, the guy who threw himself into the fire, the guy who lived up in the caves and just was absolutely out of control. You can read that there, but this, they came to Jesus after he healed the man, saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, had multiple demons inside of him, sitting there, and here's the phrase, clothed in his right what mind in other words that man who was possessed by a legion of demons was no longer out of control actually he's sitting he's clothed in his and there's the word in his right mind and it says there in the text they were afraid they were afraid because they saw something greater than the power of satan himself They saw the healing power of Christ to take a man that was out of control whom they all knew. They wouldn't even walk by that cave for fear of this guy. And there he is. He's sitting down clothed in his right mind. That's the idea of what self-control was here spoken of. Now, it's interesting to me, and I think you would agree, Titus wasn't urging the young men. You could think in your mind, hey, wouldn't you think he would say something else to you? I mean, I would think he would have said, um, urge the young men to be godly. He doesn't say that, although that's a noble virtue. He didn't encourage the young men that I want you to be men of faith. He didn't say that. That's spoken in Hebrews 11, I suppose. He didn't say, young men, here's this one characteristic. I want to urge you to be courageous. He didn't say that. He didn't say to you, young men, I want to encourage you to be brilliant leaders or brilliant evangelists, or brilliant pastors, or brilliant teachers. No, he said, I just want you young men simply to be self-controlled. And I think I mentioned this to you. It's intriguing that Paul gives seven beautiful characteristics of an older woman to train the younger women in, but here to the young men, he just gives one quality, and the quality is self control And as I mentioned in chapter 1, these Cretans were liars. They were out of control with their tongue. These Cretans were evil beasts. They were out of control with their behavior. These Cretans were lazy gluttons. They were out of control with their appetites. And Paul said that testimony is true. Now, if you can, just glance down in the scripture one more second here. It says, I want to urge the young men to be self-controlled. And it finishes there with a period in the ESV. But if you're looking in the language, look at the next verse where he says, show yourself, and then it mentions this in 2.7, in all respects to be a model of good works. Some translations take out that in all respects or in all things is what it means, and they put it at the end of verse 6. And I think that's where it actually belongs you could read verse 7 this way, show yourself to be a model of good works. So if you'd put it that way, it would say this in two six to you young men, urge the younger men to be self-controlled in all respects or in all things. So here is this young man, let's put that definition back together, who's not enslaved to habits, he's not enslaved to vices, He's not enslaved to weaknesses. He's self-controlled. He's walking in the Spirit. It's a fruit of the Spirit. In fact, an antonym to self-control would be to be a fool. Or we sometimes say that guy is out of his mind. In other words, he's out of control. He's beside himself. That's the opposite of this word. In fact, the opposite would be that young man might be rash. And so here, fathers... Here, young men, I suppose older men in the same breath, here, a a young man is to not allow his desires, not to allow his lust, not to allow his anger to control him. He is to be self-controlled. That's the meaning. But there's a third and final question. Why is there such a need for this quality? I mean, I think you would resonate with me if we just begin to talk about that, but why is there such a need for self-control? Or why is there such a need for sensible, if I use that phrase, sensible? Well, certainly, I think you would agree that young men can be impulsive. Young men can be passionate, which is awesome. But young men can also be arrogant. In fact, let me just put this in an acrostic form for you, why this need is so great, especially in the 21st century. And I'm going to put it in an acrostic under the word sensible. It's a little shorter than the word self-control. But let me show you why this is such a need. Then when he penned this and why it's such a need today, okay? The first, if we're just following that acrostic sensible, the letter S, here's why it's in need, because young men are facing sexual temptation. Obviously, they're facing sexual temptation. Do you remember when Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.22 to flee, what? Youthful lust? Sometimes you put those two together, youthful lust. And so there's a need for this quality. There's a need for self-control. In fact, it was a lack of self-control that destroyed, back in history, Alexander the Great. He was a young man who had everything he could desire. He was the son of King Philip of Macedon, who was the great Greek king. He grew up in his father's palace, did Alexander... The Great. He grew up with a teacher. Have you heard of him? His name was Aristotle. Aristotle was Alexander's teacher. His body, they said, was to be a specimen of masculine perfection. At that time, he married the most beautiful princesses in the known world. And yet the truth is, at the age of 33, Alexander the Great died of complications of alcoholism and what we would call today STD, sexually transmitted diseases. You know, I've often thought back on that. Here was Alexander the Great. He had conquered then the known world, but he never conquered himself. Lack of self control. Listen, I just for you men, this is an area that we've got to put under the mastery of the Spirit of God. I won't take too long on this, but I was talking with Shay. As you saw in the video, I was speaking on the subject of assurance of salvation. Had a wonderful time. Shay and I are going to do that each Wednesday at Hume Lake. And then Shay was speaking on the subject of technology. And I, and I read, he sent me a link to Tim Challey's, I won't go too long on this, but the ugly numbers of pornography use, okay? I'm just I'm gonna be brief. You can go check in on Challey's blog. Um, the numbers are staggering. One number was 4.6 billion. Another number was the number 11. Another number was 93%. Challey said this. He said in 2016, If you can fathom this, people watched 4.6 billion hours of pornography on just one website. 4.6, not million, but billions of hours. That would be an average of 12.5 for every person on the earth. I mean, this is just at an epidemic level. When I said the word 11, here's the statistics. At age 11, the average child has already been exposed to explicit pornography and content through the Internet. You aware of this? 11 years old. Shea told me there's kids at his school with his son Titus that have iPhones, and they're in first and second grade. Age 11. It says that 93% of the boys and 62% of the girls are exposed to internet-based pornography during their adolescent years. And this is just crazy. 57% of young adults admit to seeking out porn at least once per month. And 49% of young adults say that most of their friends are, use porn on a regular basis. Listen, you think when he said, I want the young men to be self-controlled, he knew what he was talking back in that Cretan culture. He knows what he's talking about here. And just so you know, the statistics would say that 70% of porn is watched on this. It wasn't like that when I grew up. You had to see something. You had to be on some kind of athletic team. you know. But now you, you can do this. People do this in their privacy, and it is in an epidemic level. And so self-control, listen, is needed when a young man's passions seek to rule him. Now, we're well aware of this. It's Father's Day, and in my mind, popped David and Bathsheba. Here he was, a man after God's own heart, and there he was out on his balcony, looking down and seeing Bathsheba. And at that one moment, he lacked Self control sent for Bathsheba. You know the account, she got pregnant by him. The baby died, then he murdered Uriah, her husband. And then the sword never departed from his family. And then Absalom tried to steal the kingdom from him. There is a tremendous loss here, Grace Church of the Valley, when we lack self control. So, is there a need for it? Yes sexual temptation young men are facing. Secondly, this might be to the younger men here, you are exiting authority, exiting authority, S-E, exiting authority for the first time in your life where possibly you no longer have to answer to mom and dad. You have a newfound freedom that has come to you. You have a world of opportunities that are out there. More things can go wrong. You're no longer under the umbrella of authority. In fact, sometimes young men have trouble submitting to authority. They have trouble submitting to parental authority. They have trouble submitting to church authority. And they can become irresponsible to commitments and keeping promises to family and to friends. And so they're exiting authority. I think you've heard me say from this pulpit before that the statistics in the Southern Baptist Convention are that 80% of their youth walk out of the local church at graduation of high school to never come back to it again. And so here a young man faces a dilemma. I either live off my passions, I either live off what rules me in my lust and my desires, or I allow the Holy Spirit to control my life, but this is the young men's dilemma, if you will. The Bible tells us, and certainly you would probably think He was a young man, was he not? The prodigal son who squandered all of his father had given to him for a life of debauchery. And so here's a need here, fathers, to train in your sons. They're at a time where as they begin to grow up, they're exiting authority and they need self-control in face of such opportunities. Thirdly, on our little acrostic, in, in, that's the word, does it come up there? Uh, Knuckleheads? Knuckleheads? You say, Pastor Scott, you spelled it wrong. No, that's how I wanted to spell it. Um, Young men can at times be irrational, okay? They don't tell the truth. They lie. They're knuckleheads sometimes. I'm just being honest. They do stupid things. In fact, I'll probably spare it from you, but I look back, what I did, and some of the things I did in high school With my friends and the name of fun, we were just stupid. We were just knuckleheads. In fact, I'm thankful for that verse earlier where, Lord, forgive me for the sins of my youth. There it is in Psalm 25, 7. Remember not the sins of my youth. And so there's a need for self-control because of the lack of wisdom that often plagues a young man's life. And so he needs to learn to think rationally. Number four. Serious choices under S. Serious choices. Young men are often at a point where they're making the most important decisions of their life. I gave this to a few young men even this week at Hume. The three greatest decisions of every young man's life are these. His master, his mission, and his mate. Those are the three big decisions. The three serious choices. Master. Is who's in control of your life? Is it you or is it God? Your mission, what will I do and why am I doing it? And then your mate is who and why. And I like to tell young men that it goes in that order usually every time. You better have your master under control. Then a young man needs to make sure that he knows why he's here on this planet. And then and only then, sometimes, could he then find the mate so that they can partner together. It's a real joy for me to be last night at a wedding down in Santa Carita with a number of our people, of an intern two years ago who was with us, Nathan Parsons. You know, I think of Nathan, and he married a girl named Maya. And you can just tell the whole ceremony just honored the Lord, but he's got his master right. He's got his mission correctly, and now he just married his mate. But those are serious choices, if you will. And young men are not to lose their vitality. They're not to lose their energy. They're not to lose their ambition. They're not to lose their dreams. But in those energies and in those dreams and in those uh, things that they want to do, they are to stay under control and not to do it in a rampaging, passionate, and inconsiderate way. When you think of the serious choices, I think of this one, and it's to me one of the saddest stories in all of the Bible. Because if there was ever any question to ask, this man asked the right question. If there was ever any person that you would ask this question, this man asked the right person. If there was any person that you could ever come to for the greatest source of wisdom, it was this man, and he was about to make one of the most serious choices of his life. Of course, I'm talking about the rich, young ruler. He had everything that anybody would want in the 21st century. He was rich, he was young, And he was a ruler. He'd be an elder in most churches today, okay? This man came up to the person of Christ. He asked the greatest question you could ever ask. What must I do to be saved, right? He came to the greatest person, the Lord Jesus Christ. He came in the greatest uh, approach, if you will. He came on his knees to the person of Christ. And remember, Jesus told him, you're to keep the law. And then he told him, I have. I've kept all these things from my youth up, which... He had not, but then Jesus zeroed in on the condition of his heart. He said, one thing you lack, he said, go sell your possessions and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure with me in heaven, and at that statement, it says that the rich young man turned, and he went away grieved, for he was one who owned much property. Listen, young people, can you think that's the stupidest decision a man ever made in his entire life? He's looking in the face of the person of Christ. He's looking in the face of God. He's got the greatest question, what do I do to be saved? And he walks away because his greed and his gold held him. And he holds on to it. And unless he repented, he perishes forever. And he's been in hell for over 2,000 years. But those are the kind of choices that people are making today. Those are the choices that young men are making away at college and away at work with who they hang out with and so forth. So listen, the need for self-control is huge in light of the choices being made. I, can I give you another one? It's just the word instant. In other words, you think of a young man, it's instant. I, I don't know what it is. It's all of us, if you're a little older, when you're young, you want everything now. You tend to want instant gratification. You want instant results. You don't like to be patient. And many young men are plagued by this at times. They have little patience. They have little delayed gratification. So Paul says to Titus, I want you to urge. I want you to plead for these young men who can be instant, that they need to be patient. They need to delay their gratification. Of course, I think of one Bible character uh, it, it's even hard to describe how stupid he was. I don't know if that's a word for the pulpit, stupid. How foolish he was. Do you remember that guy that got hungry? Remember the guy who came back after he was out hunting? And he came back and he was hungry and his name was what? Esau. And he just got back from the big game hunt and he said, I'm I'm." famished. And remember, his brother said, well, listen, if you're that hungry, you can sell your birthright to me. He said, listen, I'm so hungry. then he said, sell my birthright. And you know the story. Uh, He sold, did Esau, his birthright for a pot of stew. I'm like, are you serious? (laughs) He gave his birthright away because he was hungry. Maybe he cooked a like a, I don't know, an In-N-Out burger form or something. I think it was stew, and it smelled so good. But there's a young man just living off his passions, just living off his lust. Esau is an example of why young men need to be instant and why they need to be careful to be self-controlled because they're instant. You know, listen, self-control, would you agree, is lost in a moment of impulse, lost in a moment of passion, and the cost of lacking self-control is devastating. So we got to watch this. B, under our acrostic B, belligerent. I, I don't know another way to say it. it. Belligerent. Sometimes young men can be argumentative. Obviously, an older man can do that, but a young man t- tends to have that more of an issue, argumentative. Sometimes a young man can be proud Sometimes a young man could be cocky. Sometimes a young man can think he's invincible. Sometimes a young man is marked by that in First John, the boastful pride of life. And so here, beloved, he urges the young men to be self-controlled because sometimes a young man can just blurt out and speak out. The guy I'm thinking about, and I'm sure he was a young man when he did it, was one of the Lord's own Apostles. Remember they're in the garden they're going to come take Jesus by force and Peter pulled out a sword and tried to cut off the guy's head he's belligerent i think Peter would have been a young man i would think at that point and he and he went he cut off the guy's ear but you know that he wasn't trying to do surgery on his ear he was going for his head and presumably the guy ducked and so he sought to cut off is here but sometimes this need to be instant or here this aspect of being belligerent comes in and it's a part of us you know even for an elder in one of the qualifications he's not to be pugnacious so here's what's hard about leadership you're called to lead but when you lead you need to be a servant and when you lead you can't be a belligerent fool that becomes pugnacious listen i've watched in the last 5 years some of the some of the most well-known pastors who are no longer pastors simply because they couldn't control their anger. You'd want to say something more. You'd want to say, ah, oh, he was immoral with a woman. No. I think of a number of guys. I won't mention them to you. But they're no longer serving Christ because they were belligerent. They were harsh. They looked at their leadership as somebody and someone to dominate rather than to someone to lead like Christ would. So this is an important quality for young men in the life of the church. Seven, and I'll just call it L, looking. I wasn't sure what to call this. You can write this down. I I think I, I don't know, what did I put on the next slide there? I called it lazy. I wasn't sure what to put. I had a number of qualities of a young man. Looking is one of them. They're all an L. Lacking is another one. And thirdly, the the quality at least we have there is lazy. Sometimes a young man is looking to give his life to a cause. He's looking for that. He's searching for that. On the other hand, sometimes they're lacking a desire for relationships. You know the statistics are, I don't have time to go into this. I've read books on this. Do you know that the average age of a married man just keeps climbing higher and higher and higher, and higher. You say, well, Scott, that's because people are living together. No, that's not what the statistics say. It's just that the young men are growing up, and they're not taking responsibility. They're still looking, if you will. At points, they're lacking. They're lacking a desire for relationships. They're lacking a desire for leadership at time, or they, they become complacent They can become convictionless. You may even become a Peter Pan man living in a fantasy world waiting for a great job to fall out of heaven for you. In fact, the, the scene that best exemplifies this is in the movie Jungle Book. Remember at the end there when the fire had went off into that desert? You met those vultures. Is that what they were? Up on the tree, out on the limb. And they were talking to each other and saying, what you want to do? I don't know what you want to do. You keep asking me what you want to do. What do you? And then they had this banter going. That's, I think, the plight of some young men. And so fathers, you have to train your sons son to be a man. I remember one time, I don't know if I've shared this with you, when you grew up in my house, because we had seven kids, um, I had to teach my sons, you have to go to work. You go to work at 16. I mean, they're working before that, but you go get a job. And so I remember my son, Johnny, who you saw up on the screen, he was 16, and I said, Johnny, here's the program I said, you need to go up to the old road in Santa Carita and you need to walk into every business on the old road and apply. Okay, dad, I got it. He's 16. And uh, so he went up on the old road and it was one of those really hot days in Santa Carita, days that we have here. It was over 100 degrees. And I think, Patty, did you drop him off? Did you, I can't remember. We dropped Johnny off, and uh, about 2 o'clock, I got a call on my cell phone. Dad, it's Johnny. How you doing, Johnny? He says, I'm doing good, Dad. I've put my application into 30 businesses. And he goes, Dad, I'm really hot. I'm really thirsty, and can you come get me? And I don't know why. It possessed me. I just said, go put 30 more in and then call me at (laughs) 5. Because when he came back, he said to me the day before, "Uh, Dad, I'm waiting on this. I said, hey, Ardo men don't wait. I said, if you're waiting, you don't have a job. And so, and it's funny to watch those little moments. And now uh, Patty and I are with Johnny and now he works too much at HUME. And I'm trying to pull him back a little bit. It's it's just a but here. Sometimes a young man can lack and look, and some young men can become lazy. And so you got to be you got to have self control. Last one, E is an exaggerated opinion of self. In other words, uh, sometimes a young man can be selfish, all about me. Sometimes they think they're more gifted than they are. Sometimes they think they're God's gift to the earth. Sometimes they're not generally speaking, very teachable or humble. And so many young men need self-control or this quality of being sensible, okay? In 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 the New Testament, in 1 Peter 5, 5, remember when Peter said there, you who are younger, he said, be subject to your elders. And And I think there's a reason for that in 1 Peter 5, 5. He said, clothe yourselves. And he said, all of you, With humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. You say, "Well, Scott, is there hope for this?" Absolutely. Okay. You say, "Well, what what hope is there?" For three reasons, three truths to remember that will enable you to be a godly young man. You say, "Well, Scott, this is true. This is you might be saying this is true of my life in more ways than you even know." What hope is there? Three truths. Number one, I want you to remember the Savior. Remember the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Of course, the greatest example of self-control in all of the Bible is Jesus Christ. Think about it this way, young men. He manifested self-control in every situation. He was never prideful. He never spoke out of turn. He never was he in the flesh. Never did he speak a harsh word. He overcame every disappointment. He overcame every difficulty, every disaster. He submitted himself fully to the Father's will. He handled every person correctly, never faltered, never caved in to sin, never was selfish, never was egotistical, never was belligerent. You said, but I know, Scott, that's Jesus, and he was sinless. I would affirm that. But listen, you can begin to pray to be like him, can't you? You can begin to pray, as Dom read out of Romans 8, because we have the spirit inside of us that cries out, Abba, Father. You can begin to pray to be self-controlled. You can begin to pray to be a servant in your home. Whatever masters you, you can yield that in obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ, and he will help you. I remember when I was a I guess a young father. I had seven kids, and I'd work all day at the church and work all day on Sunday, six days a week, 65, 70 hours a week. And you know, I'd I I, I would drive home sometimes as a father, and I just had to remind myself, Scott, you think you're tired. Scott, you think you've fixed problems. Scott, you were studying today, and my tendency in the flesh was to want to go home and relax. But I knew that as I was driving home, my wife hadn't relaxed all day. She had changed multiple diapers, did multiple meals, and just was there all day to wipe noses and whatever she needed to do, handling our precious seven children. So I'm just telling you, fathers, that I had to fight my flesh, and there was a certain place as I drove home, this was a, when I was a pastor in Chicago. There was a certain high school. It was called Wheaton Warrenville South. They were the state champions. And I only had about a four-mile ride home. But as soon as I got to that school, I, 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 I don't think I literally did it, but I, I, I did it uh, figuratively. I, I, I looked in the mirror. I, I took the mirror over to me. And I, I pretended like I was putting a hat on because I was going to my next job. Okay, and then I went like this with my sleeves, okay, and then I rolled my sleeves up, and then I would look in the mirror sometimes so I could just, Scott, you are very selfish. You think you're coming home to relax, but you're not coming home to relax. You're going home to serve your family, and I just remember I had to do that You know, as I drove by, it was just a spot for me to say, I'm leaving, in this sense, my job, and I'm going home to my family. But I could pray, Lord, would you help me? That was my point. Lord, would you enable me? Secondly, not only remember the Savior, but would you remember sanctification? Sanctification? You say, Scott, what do you mean by that? Remember your holiness. You say, well, Scott, this is so hard to be self-controlled. People walked up to Shay. You should have seen the response. Hey, Pastor Shay, is pornography even a sin? You see the questions they asked him. Hey, Shay, did you know that on the bus, not talking about our church, people were sending foul pictures to each other on airdrop? So that means people are getting pictures on their phone, and y- y- they're there. You're not even asking for it. And so you say, what do you mean by remember your sanctification? This, look at Titus 1.1. 1, 1. He said, Paul, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth. Watch this, which accords with godliness. If we're believers, we're called to be godly. So you remember your Savior. Secondly, you remember your sanctification. Look at chapter 2 in verse 5. It, well, it says there, you're to be self-controlled to the women. At the end of 5, it says that the word of God may not be dishonored. Look at verse 8. You need to be sound in speech. Here was Titus, the exhortation to him, which cannot be condemned so that the opponent may not be put to shame. Having nothing to say about us. There's this godliness coming out. Look at chapter 2, verse 12, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled. In other words, the grace of God has come that we would live self-control. All the way through the book of Titus, there's a call to sanctification and to holiness. So listen as you go. You can remember to pray, to be like the Savior. Secondly, here, you could remember your sanctification, that he didn't call you to be unholy. He called you to be holy in Christ. Look at Titus 3.3. He says, we once were ourselves. He's looking back. We're foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions. That's how we were. And pleasures. Passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another But then it says, he saved us, verse 5. Not because of works done in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. And so the Lord saved us. You remember that he saved you, that he wants you to be sanctified. And finally, you say, well, Scott, how can I overcome? Well, you just need to remember God's saving grace in your life. One of the quickest routes to holiness is to remember what he's done in your salvation. Look at Titus 2. He says in verse 11, For the grace of God has appeared. It's brought salvation to all people. Then it says, That grace that saved you, verse 12, Is training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Oh, you remember his grace. You remind yourself of his goodness. You remind yourself of what he's done for you. And it will be one of the quickest ways to to holiness And to a life of self-control. Listen, fathers. Own this in your own heart. Teach this to your sons that we would be a church that's self-controlled. Amen?